You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Well, good morning, church. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> this morning, we're going to be talking about identity, made in his image, sexuality. And before we begin, I do want to give a heads up that we'll be talking about some sensitive issues regarding sexuality today. So parents, caregivers of children, I want you to use your own discretion as you know your kids best. And for those online, if your kids are not aware of the, bee, the birds and the bees yet, uh, you may want to put on some headphones or listen at a later time. I just want to be mindful of that. And also, I want to remind all of us that the Bible speaks openly, openly about sexuality. And in the New Testament, when Paul addresses sexuality through his letters, those letters were often read out loud in mixed company to the church that it was addressed. Okay, so we have the freedom to speak and teach on sexuality this morning. Okay, so let's take a moment and just recap the biblical foundation for humanity that we have found in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 over the past few weeks. We have found that God is our creator, and humans are made in God's image to reflect him and that we are equally valuable. We have found that gender is our embodied soul, that we are sexed differently as male and female. We have learned that the term one flesh is the biblical term for marriage, designed to be between one man and one woman. One woman. Sex difference is an intrinsic part of what marriage is. And the consequences of sin, we learned, have negatively influenced our essence as men and women. And we have also learned that Jesus affirms this gender design and sexual ethic in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, where he quotes Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if these are new concepts to you, I encourage you to listen to last week's message on gender and the previous week's message on Imago Dei. Let's continue to build this morning on these themes and discuss sexuality. One of my hopes, honestly, this morning, church, is that you leave here today with a greater appreciation and vision for how God designed your sexuality. Our sexuality is the holistic way that we, as embodied beings, embodied souls, move towards loving God and one another through meaningful connection. This is our sexuality. It's the holistic way we as embodied souls move toward loving God and loving others through meaningful connection. In the Bible, there are two meaningful ways to image God through our sexuality as men and women. The first one is singleness. And I love to start with singleness because not only do I think it is an honorable and meaningful way to live, but also I think it is highly underrated and devalued, whether it is chosen or unchosen. Being single doesn't mean you are void of sexuality. It is very much alive and active within the fullness 
of your masculinity or femininity. Singleness is also not given to avoid intimacy. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about the advantages of singleness as a meaningful way to live and follow Jesus. Not that it was better than marriage, but that it has its advantages. And Paul knew this well as a single person. Also, I love and appreciate how Christopher Yuan's words, he says this in his book. We must affirm that singleness is not equivalent to loneliness, nor is being alone equivalent to being lonely. On the flip side, even married people can wrestle with loneliness. Is this not true? Singleness plays a vital role in expressing the image of God. The second meaningful way to image God is through marriage. Marriage, through the commitment of two people who are sexed differently, becoming one flesh, making the choice to submit to one another and to serve as the icon or the image that represents Christ's love and commitment to the church. This is what Ephesians 5 talks about. As single and married people, our sexuality flows through our essence of masculinity and femininity toward connection. Nancy Percy in her book, Love Thy Body, she says this, the Bible maintains a unique balance by treating both marriage and singleness as equally valid and valuable forms of life and service. Now let's talk about some of the purposes for our sexuality. Some of the purposes for our sexuality, the first I want to say is to reflect God's character by living out different expressions of love, different expressions of love. 1 John 4.16, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The Bible Project describes love as being the very essence of God's character. Of God's character. Within the Bible, we will see different terms for love. There are Hebrew words such as hesed, loyal love, and ahava, which means affectionate, caring love. There are Greek terms such as agape, which is divine love or self-sacrificing love. There is philea, which is brotherly love or familial love. And there is eros, eros, the one that gets misunderstood the most, eros, which refers to sexually charged, passionate kind of love. The overarching story of the Bible ultimately describes love as the act of putting others before oneself, serving the interest and well-being of another. This includes eros love, the sexually charged passion. Now, eros love is not often talked about in the church, certainly not often talked about on a Sunday morning. But the Bible has an entire book expressing this type of love in the Song of Solomon. This book contains sensual poetry expressing eros love, romantic passion, between young, a young man and a young woman in ancient Israel. The Bible Project's video on the Song of Solomon is a really helpful summary. I encourage you to look that up. 
In this summary, he describes these three purposes of the Song of Solomon. To demonstrate the power and the intensity of Eros love. The power and the intensity of Eros love. It can be beautiful and life-giving, but it can also be dangerous and destructive. Eros love also demonstrates the human longing to be known and to be known. Eros love also demonstrates how love is transcendent. It is mysterious and a gift from God. On the next slide, we will see these three bullets. This is the essence of the Song of Solomon. And as Christopher West puts it, the Song of Solomon is not a footnote in our Bible. It has its prominent place. I bring this up, church, because we need to remind ourselves that God is the author, the creator of our sexuality. He is not embarrassed by it. He created it. He does not view it as bad. He is well acquainted and very comfortable with Eros love within his design. The second purpose for our sexuality is to cultivate intimacy, to know and to be known for relational connection. David Benner in his book called The Surrender to Love describes the deepest ache of our soul is the spiritual longing for connection and belonging. Why? Why is that the deepest longing? Because we are made in God's triune image, which is very intimate. We are deeply made for connection and unity, to know and to be known by one another. We see this type of intimacy in the garden between God and Adam and Eve. We also see this intimacy through the person of Jesus and how he pursued others. We also see this intimacy through the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in our inmost being, knowing our hearts and desires and motives and longings, the Holy Spirit dwells within us in a very intimate way. Another way to cultivate intimacy is through our relationships with one another. Remember, our sexuality is what flows through our essence of masculinity and femininity towards connection. So, friends, when I use the term intimacy... I'm using a much broader definition. It is more than just physical intimacy. Sam Albury, in his book called The Seven Myths About Singleness, describes within all of us is a deep yearning to know and to be known. It can sometimes feel as though sex will deliver this. Because in our sexualized culture, we tend to think of intimacy as only sex. But in the West, Sam o. Albury continues on, in the West, we have virtually collapsed sex and intimacy into each other. The Bible gives us a different perspective. Intimacy and sex, while they overlap, are not identical, nor are they always concurrent. Friends, do you know that there are different types of intimacy? 
of course, physical, but there's also spiritual intimacy. There's also mental intimacy when you share your thoughts and ideas with someone. There's emotional intimacy. There's also recreational intimacy. When you play and enjoy someone and have fun together, that is also a type of intimacy. Even conflict can be a form of intimacy. And going through a crisis can be intimacy. And you hear this. You hear this from men and women who have lived through the trauma of war together. They are bonded together in an intimate way because of what they endured. John 15, 12, 13, there is no greater love, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So it is possible, it is possible to live in an abundance of intimacy and none of it be sexual. A type of intimacy that Jesus and John shared. A type of intimacy that Ruth and Naomi shared. A type of intimacy that David and Jonathan shared. And I love this quote. David's words about deep intimacy he enjoyed with Jonathan indicate not that it must have been sexual, but that the sexual relationships he did have with women in his life might have lacked real intimacy. When I read this, I was like, oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> like, I mean, he called David out. He called David out and how he was relating to women. I think this is a profound insight. Intimacy is much wider than sex. It is a critical need in life and available for both single and married people. Now, this is not to downplay physical intimacy because it does hold a sacred place as one of the purposes for our sexuality. We see it through this next point. One of the purposes is to bond, is to potentially procreate within the marriage covenant, that it is set apart for two differently sex beings, male and female. This is a really wonderful and good expression of sexuality, to become one flesh. As good as it is, we also need to be careful not to elevate this as the ultimate purpose for our sexuality. As Christopher West so wisely explains, experience attests that even the most wonderful marriage does not fully satisfy our hunger for love and union. We still yearn for something more. We look if we look to another person as our ultimate fulfillment, we will crush that person. The last way I want to consider cultivating a greater vision for our sexuality is by realizing that our sexuality is not one-dimensional. There are several different aspects to our sexuality. And in this diagram, I wanted to give you a visual because that's what I do, right? So I wanted to give you a visual of some of the aspects of our sexuality. <clears throat> our sexuality includes biology. It includes our sexed body, our DNA, hormones, genetics, development, neurology, temperament, our reproductive capacities, our functions, our disabilities, it also contains our values 
and our beliefs. Outlined our purpose, it outlines our ethics and our theology regarding religion, humanity, culture, and morality. Sexuality does include gender, the ways our embodied souls live out as male-female, masculinity and femininity, the development of our bodies, the roles, expressions like we talked about last week. Sexuality includes connection, intimacy, the sense of knowing and being known and loved emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, physically, recreationally. It includes our expressions, behaviors. The behaviors and the purpose of the behaviors are to move us toward connection and intimacy. Attractions, being drawn towards another person person for connection and intimacy. An orientation, and sometimes we get a little tripped up on this word, but what orientation is, it just describes, it describes one's history of pattern and pattern of attraction. This next one's interesting. Sensuality is a part of our sexuality. It is the enjoyment experienced through our five senses. Did you know this was a part of your sexuality? The enjoyment that you experience through your five senses, your sight, your hearing, your taste, your smell, your touch. Have you ever been around someone who just really loves to see beauty in nature or the sound of a Broadway musical or the smell and taste of fresh homemade bread right out of the oven? And they just gush all over it. Like, they just gush. Like, oh, this is the most amazing thing I've ever tasted. Right? That is my husband. (laughs) And I love this part of him because he's a lover of goodness. He's a lover of all things good. And he is not shy to delight in goodness. Whether he sees it, hears it, smells it, he's all in. And this is a part of our sexuality. As you can see, the fullness of our sexuality is quite incredible, is it not? Multifaceted and far from being being reduced to just sex. Now, the cultural implications, let's talk about some of these. The first one would be for us as a local church and also for the global church to expand our community life in a way that honors those among us who are single. I want us, I want us to continue learning how to include our single friends in our family life, our church life, joining us on family activities, weekly coffee dates, family dinners, and please, not from a place of sympathy. Not from a place of sympathy. But rather from a place of honor in how they image God, recognizing that we need their perspective in our lives and in our church. And when we do this, when we do this as the body of Christ, our single friends, we support them in moving toward their very legitimate emotional needs. The second implication would be to discuss some of the challenges that arise when we detach from our body. 
We talked about that last week in gender, and now I want to layer it on top of our sexuality. It's worth repeating. If we don't believe our bodies are created for a specific purpose and designed to inform us how to live as men and women, then what we do with our bodies holds little value, right? Nancy Percy in her book, Love Thy Body. If the body has no intrinsic purpose built in by God, then all that matters are human purposes. If I detach from my created biology and intrinsic purpose, then what informs my sexual identity is based on my human desires, experiences within the culture. Right? It's not a full picture of our sexuality. Now, it's not nothing. There are still legitimate parts of our sexuality being played out here. But when that becomes my only moral compass, God certainly and his purposes want to be included into our sexuality. We can see how the theological foundation, what we believe to be true about God and his design for our bodies still matter a great deal when it comes to our sexuality. Detaching, detaching from the body can lead us to believe that the sexual behaviors we do with our bodies is separate from our soul. I can go and hook up with this person and it won't affect me. Or it's not a big deal if I text this inappropriate picture, then maybe I'll get what I want. Oh sure, I can look at this porn because it doesn't affect my marriage. Or I can watch this explicit TV show because then it doesn't affect my relationships, right? When we separate dignity from the body, then we give ourselves permission to use something or someone for our own gratification. God's design for our very good sexuality is to honor both our bodies and our soul our bodies and our soul. A continuation of my story from last week. Last week I shared that I suffered through gender dysphoria as a child, feeling like I was in the wrong body, feeling like I was a boy, other factors that influenced how I felt included being sexually abused by a male in my life that I should have been able to trust. So now, not only did I feel trapped in my own body, but now being a girl was dangerous. And out of those abusive experiences came the exposure to pornography at a very early age, which quickly enslaved me. As I, became to hit, as I began to hit puberty, I began to notice that I was not drawn towards the other guys, like the girls around me, as much as I tried feeling like one of the boys in my gender, the mystery within physical and emotional attractions was towards the girls. I deeply longed to be loved in a feminine way. I didn't know how to process these same-sex attractions back then. But I did feel a tremendous amount of shame and disgust. And it has taken me years to receive layers of healing and years to understand the depth of how these experiences impacted my gender 
and my sexuality. Years of opening up myself to the Lord and asking him to speak over me the truth of who he made me to be, his daughter, that I'm loved by him, that I'm known by him, that I'm chosen by him. And in return, in return, I give him my surrender to his design and declare I am who you say I am. I no longer wrap my identity around my struggles, but rather invite the Holy Spirit into my struggles to show me, show me what is good, what's a legitimate longing that lay beneath my struggles. And this brings me to my next point. What are you thirsty for? What are you craving? Remember, Church, remember, the role and the purpose of the enemy is to twist anything that's good that God creates. In this case, our expression of Eros love. We must recognize that Eros has been disoriented in us by original sin. This means that the way to obtain the love we long for isn't simply by submitting to our erotic desires as we now experience them. But we are tempted to, aren't we? We are tempted to because we don't really believe God wants to satisfy our desires. That's the original sin. We exchange the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1 that he came and came to believe that God was holding out on us. We come to believe that the satisfaction of our hunger, our eros, is totally up to us. So we make attempts to satisfy this hunger or this thirst, but can so often miss the target. Sin means to miss the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. It's an archer's term. When we sin, we're actually aiming for something good, but we miss the target. These missed mark behaviors, the Bible calls sexual immorality. And here's how it can play out. When you have an attraction, there's a temptation to take that attraction, twist it, and make it sexual. Make it lust-filled in our heart of motivations. We see this in James 1, 14, 15. For each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then the desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. While attractions are longings to connect with one another through intimate ways in a variety of ways, when our attractions... Though they can be involuntary experience, there's an opportunity after that attraction to figure out what is the attraction revealing before that good desire gets twisted and gives birth to sin and leads to lust. Lust is a choice. Sometimes it stays internal within us and other times it takes action through sexual behaviors. These sexual behaviors specifically are what the Bible refers to as sexual immorality, which is outside the boundaries of God's very good design for our sexuality. Sexual immorality is outlined by the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, in 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. And what's interesting 
is sexual morality is under the same context of many different kinds of unrighteous behaviors, not just sexual. According to Paul, sexual sins are not any worse than being envious, greedy, prideful, or a liar. There are many ways that we can miss the mark reflecting God's character. So the sexual sins are not any worse, but there is a difference that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. There's a difference here, and I think it's profound. I think it's profound. It validates how important it is for our sexuality to stay connected to our bodies versus detached. These verses do also speak against the practice of same-sex behaviors, which is consistent with the rest of Scripture. There is not a context in which same-sex behaviors was elevated and affirmed in Scripture. This is not because gay relationships didn't exist back then in ancient Roman culture. They surely did. We have to remember that the ancient Roman culture allowed men to get their needs met through either gender. Via prostitution or slavery or adultery and even through a consensual context. Same-sex behaviors and gay relationships are not unique to our generation. I appreciate how Sam Albury describes this cultural key. Christian sexual ethics were not determined by a person's status or social value in Roman society, but by the unique and complementary dignity of men and women as God's image bearers. The idea of this was very countercultural. To have any kind of sexual boundary or sexual ethic was countercultural back then. Now, even this historical sexual ethic is trying to preserve the foundation of our gender and sexuality that God intentionally designed. We weren't created to be self defining beings. God as our creator defines who we are and takes every part of our sexuality into consideration. Now, even as I share this ethic in hopefully the most compassionate way that I can, I'm keenly aware of how painful this is for some of my friends. The grief around this is very real. And I want you to know that I see you, that I see you, and I love you. May we be the church that comes alongside you. Please don't walk this alone. Your attractions and struggles do not ever put you outside the reach of God's love. So I ask again to all of us, however your struggles may look this morning, what are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? What are you hungry for? One of the most powerful and insightful passages that sheds light on our deepest desires 
of our heart is John 4, when Jesus pursues the Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria. To set this up real quick, Jesus intentionally goes to Samaria, which is a no-no for the Jewish people. They literally looked at the land and the people as unclean. Jewish people did not go to Samaria. Next, Jesus specifically chooses to go to a water well in the middle of the day, which was ludicrous. It was the hottest time of the day. Nobody would do that. And no one did do that, except if they were an outcast. And he specifically goes to meet a woman. Again, nope, not allowed. Not allowed in this culture. Jewish men did not talk to other ethnic women. And even worse, this specific woman was an outcast because of her sexual brokenness. And when they meet, they begin to have this really intense conversation around water. And the climax of the verses 13 and 14, let's read what Jesus says. Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become, will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I may never be thirsty. Jesus is the living water we're all thirsty for. It is only after Jesus offers her the living water that he calls out her sexual brokenness. And because she felt known by him, how do you know that? (laughs) She declares her faith that he must absolutely be the Messiah. Jesus doesn't need you to take care of all your sexual struggles before you come to him. He says, come to me. And I will give you what you are thirsty for. Michael Cusick's book called Surfing for God. He explores how every sinful behavior is rooted in a legitimate God-giving longing. And he categorizes them as seven core thirsts. There are a variety of them. These thirsts are a longing for security, a sense to know I'll be okay. A sense for significance, for meaning, purpose. A longing for satisfaction, for fullness and well-being. A longing for acceptance, to belong, to be desired. A longing for affirmation, to be blessed and encouraged. A longing for affection, to be enjoyed. A longing for attention, to be delighted in, to be embraced. In my personal life, And also in my counseling practice where I work with gender and sexuality, I want to do more than sin management. Sobriety and accountability partners do serve a very critical role. But if that's all we're doing, we're not fully healing at the root of the issue. So we need to ask ourselves, what is the thirst underneath my sexual struggle? How can I move and cooperate with a legitimate good thirst in a way that honors my created design of body and soul? This means that when I am tempted to act on my sexual struggles, I practice asking myself, what am I really needing that this represents? Often the longing to be desired or to be pursued This means that when I am tempted to take an attraction toward the same sex and twist it, I pause and practice asking, what does this represent? 
What am I really thirsty for? And often it is a longing to belong and have deep, meaningful, feminine connection, which is not sinful. And when I take action towards what is good, that is called stewardship. That is called stewarding my sexuality with integrity. Stewarding our sexuality with integrity. We, we walk out our sexual integrity by fusing our essence of gender with our sexuality. The male sex body, all right? So let's pair this together. Let's put it together, friends. The male sex body reveals an essence of masculinity that has the capacity to impact and show up and lift up with strength through his sexuality, by reflecting the character and image of God. Amen. The female sex body reveals an essence of femininity that has the capacity to be opened up, receive, and nourish life through her sexuality by reflecting the character and image of God. Our gender is a critical part of our sexuality and how we move toward intimacy. We want to pair this by reflecting the character of God. Our sexuality and the different expressions of our sexuality should be paired with patience, kindness, and self-control. In doing so, we live in unity. And for those of you who are really struggling, you came in struggling with your sexual integrity this morning. If you haven't let God into your life or this part of your life. I just strongly encourage you to open yourself up to the source of living water who is the only one who can touch that very deep, intimate place in you. God's light is not afraid of any dark place. Go ahead and ask your gut-wrenching questions. Go ahead and cry out your disappointments. He wants to walk with you on the journey, not because it will automatically become easy, but because he doesn't want you alone in it. He wants his agape love, his self-sacrificing love to be wrapping you up. And I think the closer you get to him and his voice, I think you will find his grace is not shy. And when we mess up, and we will, We confess our sins to one another and to God. And he says, I will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Let me end with this quote. Christopher Yuan. If sex, desire, and relationships are all shaped by God's grand story, and God's grand story is shaped by Christ, then this means sex, desire, and relationship. This means our whole sexuality must be shaped by Christ as well. All of my sexual behaviors, eros desires, romantic feelings, sentimental relationships, and even all my platonic friends must be conformed to Jesus Christ and nothing else. Nothing else. I want to invite the prayer teams forward this morning. And if if this was an oh-so-tender topic for you, and there are some areas where this causes pain, I want you to come forward and receive prayer. 
if this feels tender because you have a loved one that you know is really trapped or ensnared with their sexual struggles, I want you to come forward and ask for prayer. Father, help us to open our hands up before you, to surrender our whole selves to you, our mind, our heart, our bodies, and our sexuality. Lord, you know the ins and outs of us very intimately. We thank you. We thank you for the ways in which you walk with us. We thank you for the ways that we're not alone in our struggles. We thank you for the ways that you have loved us. We thank you for the ways that you have declared over us who we are in you. God, give us the strength and the courage to walk that out in freedom. Lord, not our will, but yours be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.